The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by RapNet, the diamond trading network. Check out their recently launched Trade Center to make buying and selling diamonds easier than ever. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm your host, David Ehrlich, and today we'll be talking about the outlook for this holiday season. Christmas stocking is in full swing, and all eyes are on the shopping season that officially begins on Black Friday. The Rappaport News Team will help us understand if retailers will be having a happy holiday, or if we will see a wobbling market take a tumble. Also on the docket, the fall of Sears. Does the retail giant's bankruptcy hold any lessons for the industry? The DPA released a new campaign to differentiate natural and lab-grown diamonds, but do they really help to distinguish the two products? And Joshua had a chance to sit down with Aliyah Arundale, an expert diamond dealer and the founder of the Facebook page Jewelers Helping Jewelers, the largest collection of retail jewelers on social media in America. Joining me today in the studio is Rappaport's editorial team. Here with us is John Costello. Rappaport's publisher, to tell us how he sees the season going. So John, you may have heard the GIA recently named a new mineral, christened Crowning Shieldite, in honor of the famed gemologist G. Robert Crowning Shield. If you had the chance to name a mineral, what would you call it? I think the Crowning Costello Cluster has a nice ring to it. (laughs) Also here, news reporter Joshua Friedman to help us get a handle on the holidays. So Joshua, what would you name a new mineral? Assuming that uh, you can name them after living people, I think I call my mineral uh, Juliet after my wife Juliet. (laughs) So we know who at least one of our listeners is. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think my mother listens more than my wife does. (laughs) She's uh, one of our biggest fans. And joining us once again, you just heard him, senior analyst Avi Kravitz, who will share his thoughts on the upcoming season and more. But first, what would you call a new mineral? Hi, David. It's it's good to be here again. And um, I get the feeling that if you, you just add I-T-E to any word, that becomes uh, the name of a mineral. So uh, I'm left with avite, aviite, or, or cravite. And I think I'll have to go with the cravite um, <laughs> The cravate option. Sounds luxurious. So before we get into the meat of today's episode, the holiday season and our expectations, I wanted to get a read from you guys about what you think about the fall of the retail behemoth Sears. Maybe, John, you could give us a few thoughts on it. Well, I suppose the lesson for the industry, not just the diamond and jewelry business, but for businesses worldwide, is that what is will not always be uh, in an ongoing and uh, futuristic sense, I think in my lifetime, one of the the biggest uh, companies that just more or less disappeared, I know they're still uh, around a little bit, but is definitely Nokia, which was the, uh, the biggest mobile phone uh, producer in the world. Along came the smartphone, along came Apple, and... Um, Nokia were just, you know, just strategically were ill-positioned to take advantage of that. 
I think with Sears, we're seeing fairly much a, a similar thing. I uh, made a lot of uh, mistakes in trying to uh, diversify too much. But it, it's just amazing that these huge, big companies that just are such a, a feature in our lives um, are just household brand names. And the, the thought that Sears is going to be no more is just quite shocking. And I, I think our industry, in many senses, is at that type of pivot point that if we don't modernize, if we don't uh, open up a multi-channel uh, engagement with consumers and really innovate, you know, there's a lot of big names within our industry that could go the, the way of Sears and uh, of Nokia. Is that sort of the read that you're getting, Avi? Yeah, and uh, and I think back to a year ago when uh, you know when Toys R Us um, filed for bankruptcy, and it was was also before the holiday season, and was this big retail um, story. But uh, I think Sears um, overshadows that even, and it just uh, retail is changing at such a fast pace that, as John said, if you don't innovate, um, you can't just uh, live off a good name. Especially in today's environment, which is price sensitive, it's personable. Um, you've got the Amazons of the world that can potentially, you know, cannibalize your business. So you really have to be on top of things and and not take um, your successes in, of the past for granted. So Joshua, do you think that this will have any sort of direct impact on the jewelry market? Um, I think following from what John and Avi both said, it certainly gives lessons to the jewelry industry because. There's been a lot of reports in, in recent months and years that the U.S. retail market was overstored, so there are too many stores out there. And a, a very likely uh, consequence of overstoring is that certain businesses will just leave the market completely. Um, and actually, we're, Abby and I were talking just this afternoon about how if we were to completely uh, delete the current diamond industry and reinvent it as uh, as fit for the 21st century, uh, what it would look like. And one of the things that Avi pointed out was that there would probably be a lot fewer diamond manufacturers. So I think, uh, as Avi has already said, that it's uh, one one thing we can learn from that is an industry doesn't have to be as big as, as it is right now, and there will ne- inevitably be casualties. And it's also, it's not a matter of, of quantity, it's it's quality, really. That's important. Um, I think one of the critiques of Sears is that it didn't refresh its um, its look, it's uh, the feeling of its stores and its inventory, more probably more importantly. And that's a, that's a discussion that I think everyone along the pipeline has to have on a continual basis. Yeah, and I think if you look at a Sears-like company in our industry, which is Signet, and look at the great work that that company is undertaking now, realized the situation was in and is following a strategy now to reverse that, uh, to modernize its its operations and to really look at the hub uh, or the core of the problem that it's facing and really radically transform their business model. And um, I think that's a good, very positive sign uh, in terms of our industry and what big Sears-like type of companies are doing to, to make sure they are around next year, the year after that, and five years and 10 years. And the other aspect is, you know, is about discounting. I don't think in today's environment it, it necessarily pays to discount, um, especially go, you know going into the into the holiday season. You know, all the retail coaches are saying, be confident in your product and stand behind the promise of that product. And sometimes discounting or over discounting can harm your brand and, and sort of cheapen your your name. Well, but we're still expecting to see pretty deep sales in a variety of places for the holiday season, right? Um, yeah, I think um, on, the, on the whole, the, the U.S. Is, is quite optimistic about the holiday season. 
you know, discounting the the recent um, volatility we've seen on the uh, on the stock markets. But uh, it's overall been quite a good year on the stock markets. Um, people are feeling more um, more wealthy. Unemployment is at a healthy level, and and people are willing to spend. It's just it's a different environment and it's a dynamic environment that retailers are still adapting to, but I think are in better position than in the past to capitalize on. Yeah, I think when you look across the border at all the economic uh, predictions in terms of the holiday season, and they're all very, very positive. I think the National Retail Federation is looking at a growth of between 43 to 4.8%, and that would take sales up to, you know, at a, at a peak level to just over $720 billion. So there is an awful lot of confidence in America. And remember, America is the heart of the diamond luxury and jewelry market. And really, this is on the back of, as we said, very strong growth in um, the stock market. There's been a few wobbles of, of late, but still year over year, very good. Record high household net worth, uh, gains in disposable income, a very, very strong job market. So the U.S. economy is showing itself to be very robust. There's arguments about how long can we see that survive. But I think most people are saying at least two to three years out, you know, we're going to have that. So I think it's a good time for the jewellery and, and diamond industry as well. And uh, I think people are, are looking towards this holiday season as a real positive sign and and, and to really buoy the, the industry and, and, and move it out of the kind of doldrums that we've been experiencing over the last uh, five or so years. And the optimistic but cautious approach that many people have been taking and to lessen that kind of uh, cautious element and just really drive the optimism in, in our industry. So, I mean, it's nice to see that general market sentiment is going to play a positive impact. Are there things that, you know, industry organizations should be doing or are doing that are going to tilt the scales towards a good holiday season? I mean, what do you think, Joshua? I think we've seen a few campaigns by various um, trade organizations to try and improve marketing. And I think if you ask your average jeweler what they're concerned about at the moment, they'll probably say the increased awareness of lab-grown lab grown diamonds and what that means for sales of, of natural diamonds. So I think uh, jewelers want help with um, differentiating lab-grown from natural diamonds. Um, and I think they're getting a fair amount of, of help from organizations like the the Diamond Producers Association already. Yeah, I'm not so sure that the uh, the industry organisations, especially right here, right now. So we're we're coming up to the end uh, week or two of of October. I think it's really down to individual retailers now, and I think uh, they're realising that, and it's all about consumer engagement, how they filter in consumers into their store, educate them about their product lines, engage with them, and. We're very much finding where in in many retailers' minds now they have the in-store experience and their e-commerce experience. And what really has to happen and is happening is that will blend in just to being a consumer experience. So whether the consumer wants to go to your store, wants to look online, wants to email you, call you, talk to you face-to-face, it should be all part of the different options, but it's not a different thing. So that seamless uh, environment that consumers are familiar with, so that's really on retail stores, uh, on jewelers, to really drive sales, to be there for their clients, to be able to have that discussion about synthetics or about natural diamonds, about colored diamonds, about emeralds, whatever it might be. But it's really, the onus now is on 
the retailer. The beers isn't going to come and scoop you out of the hole. The DPA isn't going to come and scoop you out of the hole. You know, it's it's really up to you to take charge of of your customer and how you communicate with them and how you're accessible to them in a very fluid way based on what they want, what suits them. And, and different consumers will have different, you know, ways that they want to engage. Some people prefer going to the stores, depending on the purchase value. Some people do it online, but you just have to be, that whole omnipresence is really just going to become your consumer engagement. And I would add that the uh, the trade organisations such as the DPA, their main job is not to try and drive sales for a particular season, so for, the, for this holiday season. A lot of them are trying to um, more shape diamond branding in the long term. So, I mean, John, you talk, you know, about what retailers are supposed to be doing. Avi, is this any different than what we thought retailers should be doing last year or the year year before? Are there new tools available? Are there new channels that they should be looking into? Well, it's about making it a more exciting consumer experience you know whether it's online or in store or both um, you know people want to go to your store and have a have a positive and exciting experience like you might have in an apple store for example and and i actually don't think it's about um i don't think lab grown diamonds is is going to be a factor this in, in the holiday season it's an issue in the industry but if a jeweler is selling a lab grown diamond it increases his revenue and you know power to him i think really what what jewelers are, um, have to be worried about is the, you know the new iPhone about um, beautiful handbags or you know other luxury items that consumers um, might spend on instead of a, a beautiful piece of diamond jewelry. So it's it's about enticing the the consumer into the store with this most beautiful product that we have and making it exciting and not so aloof um, experience, which I think a lot of consumers um, have that sort of relationship with a jewelry store you know you walk past it and there's an there's maybe an over elegance about it and it's not accessible enough and we want to make it a an accessible and exciting um, option for for consumers yeah and i think avi is really on the money there that i think most analysts and uh, and uh people who are looking to the holiday season all agree that it's it's going to be a very strong market but the big question is can the retail jewelers and and diamond guys can they get their money from this uh, big uh, tidal wave of spending and the, the industry was looking to jck as a sign that we've turned a corner it didn't really happen then they turned their eyes to hong kong sales were a little bit disappointing and weak so it didn't happen now they're looking at the holiday market and will that be the sign that we've turned a corner and as abby said it's all about the competition now for a diamond ring or piece of jewellery isn't another uh, diamond ring or a synthetic ring even. It's that iPhone, that uh, once-in-a-lifetime uh, one-month trek around Asia that millennials want to do. Do you know what I mean? So the competition for that consumer dollar is much, much more intense. And that traditional security that jewellery and diamond purchases have is breaking away and, and the stores, the retailers really have to make that an engaging experience. And and some some jeweller stores are doing wonderful things. I, I remember, uh, you know, hearing at one of the JCK talks about this jeweller who uh, has a, a restaurant based around the shop. So people come in, they walk through the jewellery store into the back where there's a full restaurant. And then on the way back, they leave after being wined and dined and, and watered. They sometimes pick out a piece of jewellery and buy it. So it's, it's just really radically changing the experience and, and making it an experience for, for the customer. 
So not just that uh, that familiar experience you have of going into the high-end jewelry store with the, with the beautiful display cases and looking at the pieces, almost like you're in an art gallery, but more a tactile experience, in fact. Yeah, the jewelry is not... Um it's not made to to sit in a display cabinet. It's made to be worn, and that's what um, what we want consumers to realize and and know that it's uh, it's for them. It's wonderful that there's a lot of optimism around this season, and that there has been optimism, and people have been looking for that corner turn, that sign that we've reached a new positive place. What happens if this season doesn't go so well? Well, it's it's not all positive. To put a damper on things, um, the the other side of the market is uh, are the emerging markets. We've got Diwali coming up, which is a uh, growing in importance in terms of diamond jewelry purchases, and then there's the Chinese New Year, and um, I think there are a lot of questions around um, the impact that the the trade war between the the US and China might have on consumer sentiment in the East. Currencies have depreciated in both India and um, and China, and that may make products more expensive in those countries. It may affect the tourist dollar, you know, from Chinese tourists, etc. So there are concerns and it's not all rosy for for the trade. But overall, we are seeing that, um, you know, diamond prices have been fairly stable in 2018 through the positive consumer sentiment and uh, deep concerns within the market as well. So, John, Joshua, Avi, any last thoughts on the holiday season? I think that the consequence of what Avi is saying is that the global industry has maybe become a bit more reliant at the moment on um, on the U.S. market. So it is a very important season with uh, with China and India struggling a little bit more. Yeah, I think uh, we have to be confident and see what happens. But I, I'd be confident that this uh, will be a significant turning point for the industry and hopefully uh, puts a bit of wind in the sails of the industry to drive it forward. If it doesn't happen, there's going to be a lot of rethinking. A lot of companies would be looking at their books and, and wondering how they can manage to uh, continue. And there could be some consolidation. But I think on a positive note, I think it will be a strong season. I think it will re- really give the energy uh, finally something to be uh, you know, happy and confident about going forward. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, um, David. I think we have a lot to be excited about, but at the end, I think the the main message is to show your excitement that uh, across the trade, um, I, I believe that optimism or positivity sort of breeds positivity. If I, if I may sound uh, cliched, but um, but I think um, that filters through to the consumer, um, and if they're going into a store with a good energy. There is a trickle down effect um, both to the trade and also into two thousand and nineteen. Thank you guys very much for the insight. I'm looking forward to the holiday season. Up next, Joshua sat down with Alia Arundel. Have you heard about the Rappaport Research Report? If you haven't, then you're missing out on the latest data report from the Rappaport team. Did you know that more than 80% of SI Clarity Diamonds in the 50-pointer category listed on RapNet in October 2017 sold within three months? or that listings of three-carat diamonds jumped 30% on average across all categories in Antwerp this February? With the Rappaport Research Report, you can get valuable and actionable data to make smart, savvy investments and start increasing your profit margins. Don't get left behind. Subscribe to the Rappaport Research Report today to get business intelligence for the diamond industry.
Joshua had a chance to interview one of the most dynamic dealers in the industry, Alia Arundel. Alia shared her thoughts on the state of the U.S. retail market and what it's like to be the founder and moderator of the most active jewelry retail Facebook group in America. We're joined over the phone from Chicago by Alia Arundale, uh, the founder of Jewelers Helping Jewelers, a Facebook group. Uh, Alia, thanks a lot for joining us today. How are you? I am thrilled to be here. I love jewelers, I love jewelry, and I love Rappaport. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so uh, tell me about Jewelers Helping Jewelers. Um, it's been very successful. I know you've got, uh, is it 14,000 members, which is pretty incredible. And it's been going for quite a while. When did you start it and what was the uh, thinking behind it? Sure. You know, I grew up as a fifth generation retail jeweler and I saw how hard it was. So, you know, everything I do is how can I make it easier for retail jewelers because they have to do so, so, so much. You know, uh, diamond dealers only have to know em diamonds and emerald dealers only have to know emeralds, but jewelers have to know how to get the back off a watch and they have to know the marketing and which lighting to use and what opal treatments. And so anything I can do to make their life easier makes me very, very happy. Um, when I started Jewelers Helping Jewelers, it was about two and a half years ago. And actually, I was helping a jeweler source a Rolex. And so what I used to do is I'd have an email block of like my 10 Rolex people. And whenever I needed anything, I'd email them and they'd email me back and I have this big email chain. And then the next day I needed to... Um, you know, someone needed a, a certain sapphire. And so I would email out my sapphire dealers, but it was such a laborious process. Mm, you know, yeah. they wouldn't get responses till the next day. And, you know, um, there are some some great uh, forms where you can list jewelry and diamonds and things, but they weren't instant. You know, right now, people talking, you know, live like like a chat room would be. Mm. And so, um, you know, it was a lot of my friends uh, are in Facebook groups. I'm in a couple moms groups. There's some nursing groups. I mean, Facebook groups is, is certainly nothing new. Mm. I think it was just the time for somebody to do it. And, um, you know, I think me being like not really involved in like one organization, like I wasn't like from the AGS doing it or in IGI or, you know, one of these people in a group already. I was just kind of like somebody open in the trade. And um, and so that's why it worked. You know, it was just somebody that made it free for everybody. Mm. So what happens? Someone it. in the industry wants, um, wants a particular item, um, a jeweler. Uh, and they post in the group saying, has anyone got a uh, three carat sapphire, whatever it is? Um, and then you uh -huh. get people in the comments saying, yeah, I've got one or uh, that's that's how it works. Well, I really didn't. You know, I started it kind of as as, a, as something like like that. I and mean, that is exactly how it works. Yes. If someone is looking at I mean, that was um, that was my original intention, but it's just become so much more. So, you know, um, if people are want to get rid of showcases, if people are looking for a certain semi-mount or just want to, you know, even if somebody's expressing, you know, they had a bad experience with this one, um, you know, men's band company, they express it there or they're searching for the best jeweler, uh, jewelers mutual policy so it's become absolutely anything jewelry related i mean people will um put marketing questions there they will um you know go it's it's just absolutely everything so yes i started it as a way to source things and there are billions of dollars being traded on there i mean people are posting you know uh you know hundreds of thousand dollar items for sale and they're also posting you know 20 dollar loops um it's been a great place for supplies you know if people need um you know, tweezers and a new drowel or, you know, anything for their bench. Uh, there's a lot of bench guys, a lot of pawn guys, a lot of watch dealers. It's become mm. a watch trading group. So it's just kind of a one stop for everything. Mm. 
I find sometimes with these groups, the practicalities and the uh, the practical requests that you see on the group on these groups are, are secondary, really, to what you might call the banter uh, and the fun that people mm-hmm. have on these groups. Is, is that true with jewelers helping jewelers? Yeah, there is some hilarious stuff. Like there was one woman, uh, a customer that came into a store and she swore that the jeweler swapped her CZ with a different CZ, you know, and something like that. You can understand how people would go crazy, you know, um, and there was a lot of funny, you know, uh, one time like, a, you know, bench jewelers like to show the funny job tickets. And one of them was like, please fix the dark spot inclusion in my diamond, you know. And so mm. there are just really funny things that happened that you wouldn't get to share anywhere else. You know, where can you tell everybody these kind of crazy stories? And so I think a lot of people go on for the entertainment value. I mean, there's certain posts that get over, you know, a thousand comments. I mean, that is extremely active. That's not just like likes or seeing those are actual comments. I mean, yeah. the amount of participation has been insane. I mean, I, I get about, let's see, 37 posts an hour. I figured it, it was about 5,000 posts a day. That's not even comments. So it really is a fast moving, super active group and it's free and there's no rules. And I think that has been so different than everywhere else. Everywhere else is like, mm. you know, oh, should I post this? Is this okay? And, you know, what are the rules and how can I do this? And there aren't any because I trust jewelers to make it the most interesting and the most helpful and and Mm -hmm. people really have just done it Mm. so i know people use it also to discuss and and express uh, their various concerns about uh, what might be going on in their part of the industry what do you see from these posts about what people are worried about at the moment in the uh, in the u.s jewelry and and retail sector well certainly there's a lot of confusion about the lab grown um Mm. you know you think everyone would get it or you know even the difference between um a drilled and a filled diamond you know in the diamond business for me it's really simple but jewelers have to know so many different things and it's interesting that a lot of them are confused between those two items and and the lab i think it's because there's so many terminologies and then the fc you know, and so we really try to do a lot of clarity. The um, the mm. Diamond Producers Association is involved in the group and uh, Kate Peterson. And there's a lot of people. Um, Julie Tobin Jones is a great way to get messages out. Uh, Real is rare is trying to mm. get on there and, and they're mm. doing their best to clarify some of these confusing topics. Mm. And this just to explain to our listeners, the um, the term you was it uh, drill and fill. Is that what you said? That's when you uh, oh, yes. make a stone look bigger by putting a lab grown inside. Yeah. Well, not a, not a, not a lab grown inside. So a drilled is either where you just take a laser and you drill into a diamond, but you don't put it, put anything in Ah, versus a filled diamond. Um, you fill it with a reflective, you know, glass like substance that reflects back. Both of them are natural diamonds. Mm -hmm. They're both just treatments. And there's a lot of confusion between treatments you can do to a natural diamond versus an entirely, a diamond entirely made in a laboratory. Mm. So moving uh, onto the U.S. market a bit more uh, generally, what are your expectations for the coming holiday season and what can jewelers do in order to have a successful season? Oh, my gosh. Anything. The thing is, so few people do anything that if you do anything, you are ahead. I mean, I used to call jewelers and say, hey, what do you you know, what are your plans for Christmas? And they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll have a ladies night. And so Cisco Ebert once said in a sea of sameness, anything different is often seen as better. I mean, the really the fact is just doing it. So many jewelers just never get around to actually having that, you know, gold buying party or having that you know, guys night out. And so really it, it isn't matter what the idea, it's not a great idea. It's doing it. I am such a, you know, proponent of this before Uber, I'm 
don't know if you have Uber around the world, but in mm-hmm. Chicago, Joey it's P. very, very big. So before that, there was Magic Cab. So it's not that Uber was such a great idea. Mm. They just did it better. And they just yeah. went through and did it. And so I'm very for like, you take whatever idea it is and just do it 100%. Put your all into it. You know, get the word out. Make those flyers. So if you're having, you know, a pirate-themed gold-buying party, like, arr, we want your gold, you know, just really go for it. Um, I... I think reviews are the number one thing anyone can do for their business. Um, it's There's no word of mouth anymore. It's word of Google. It's word of Yelp. And mm-hmm. so anything you can do to get more reviews, there are people you can mm-hmm. pay to help do it. There are um, a lot of kind of tricks. Like if a customer comes in and they want a new watch battery, instead of charging them the 5 or $8, say, oh, we'll only charge you one review. Um, so there's a lot of little tricks and people can message me. I have a whole bunch of ways to get more reviews because I do believe that is how you drive traffic. So in other words, you tell them, we won't charge you, but give us a good review. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Because it's more of an incentive than just saying, hey, will you please give me a review? If mm-hmm. it's like a charge, mm-hmm. they're more likely to actually mm-hmm. leave the review. Okay. Moving to social media more broadly, what great examples have you seen recently of jewelers using social media for positive effect and for increasing their sales and profitability? Well, when you said positive effect, it really made me think more like the helping the world charity type thing. And I think there are a lot of ways you could, jewelers can do that. Um, I know one jeweler that when servicemen die, he makes them a uh, dog tag. And so he goes to funeral homes, he gets the name and he sends it to the customers. So that got written up in the paper. He made, you know, a whole Facebook post about that. And that got shared. Or there was a woman that gave, um, you know, a a necklace to any woman in town that, you know, lost her job. Um, and so that she could look nice for her interview. And so those of course can be promoted on Facebook or, or social media, but you know, anything where you're helping others, it really comes back and helps you. I'm doing a campaign now called bling for blindness Mm. and we're putting up jewelry for auction on a Facebook group called jewelers direct, where jewelers can sell to the public. I actually took a hundred retail jewelers from Jewelers Helping Jewelers and created a new group where we could join together to sell to the public. Like this has never happened before. Every jeweler has their own group, but it's not jewelers working together to sell to the public. So on Jewelers Direct, we sell to the public directly, but we also do a lot of big charity promotions like um, mm-hmm. like Blink for Blindness. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's um, worthy reasons behind uh, a lot of these charity social media campaigns. But in addition, a jeweler is finding that they're actually making money in the long term out of this and it's uh, it's improving their brand and the way that people see it. I mean, 83% of millionaires belong to some form of charity. I mean, you want to sell the mm. people with money. Charity is a great way to do it. And it's not just give it. You can't just like give them this necklace and walk away. You have to use it to drive traffic to your site. So let's say, and uh, let's say uh, the... Um, Diabetes Association. It's not like I would say, here's this necklace. I would call the Diabetes Association and say, I'm going to auction off this necklace on my Facebook page. Tell all your members to go to my page, like my page, and bid for this necklace. So you're driving all of that traffic. Actually, the National Diabetes Association is driving all that traffic to your page. So it's a big traffic draw. They they have to go there and they have to like your page. And once they like your page, other posts that you make, they're going to see it. So I think that is an awesome way to, you know, look good in your community, give back. And when you give to others, they want to give to you. Mm. 
just a final question earlier. Yeah. When we originally asked you to take part in this interview, uh, you sent us back a photo of you standing in front of, I think, a, a De Beers stand at a show, maybe, making a, um, a questionable gesture at this stand. What was behind that photo? Okay, so my entire being is how can I help the retail jeweler and what can I help the retail jeweler? And I was very upset at De Beers because I, I believe they're cutting out the retail jeweler. I, they are releasing lab-grown diamonds at a very, very low price in order to make lab-grown diamonds, you know, into like a CZ, like a moissanite to devalue it, which is very smart. If I was a businessman, I would do it too. But I don't think they had to cut out the retail jewelers to do it. Retail jewelers have helped De Beers. They, have, they are... The whole reason this this works, they are 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 the customers, um, what they see, and what the Beers could have done is they could have sold diamonds, lab grown's really cheap through the retailer, mm-hmm. but by selling it, they're cutting out the retailer by opening. They're selling directly to the public. It's absolutely, you know, they were they always talk about the supply chain and how important it is, and they just screwed the supply chain. I mean, I I think it is terrible because you know they're selling uh, half carat diamond earrings for you know lab grown diamond earrings for like three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to the jewelers where they used to sell that price point? And so um, I respect what they did. I know they're a business, but I believe they could have done exactly what they did without the retail jeweler and i believe what they're doing is hurting the retail jeweler and uh well and the entire supply chain understood uh Aaliyah, thank you very much for your time and it's, had, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast okay it was an honor thank you thank you rapnet has just launched the trade center a better way to communicate and trade on their network rapnet's new trade center lets you negotiate and close deals in a more secure centralized and efficient way Find out more at rapnet.com forward slash TC. So before we get going, we had another thing come up recently, uh, and that is that the Diamond Producers Association has recently released a five essential truths about diamonds and a five essential truths about lab-grown diamonds. And I know you've had a chance to look at them uh, since I handed you the sheets, and I was wondering if you had some thoughts. Are these truths that people need to know about diamonds and lab-grown diamonds? I think clearly they are. Uh, they are important to know. Uh, I think one sees that people who are not expert in the diamond industry often use phrases like fake diamonds or um, other similar phrases because they're not educated about diamonds. And when one questions them, one sees that they often can't actually, they don't know the difference between a synthetic diamond that was grown in a laboratory and a simulant such as cubic zirconia, or they don't even know those terms. And the main question really that someone in the industry or a jeweler needs to ask is when a consumer comes into my store and says, are these diamonds real? Uh, What do I say to them if it's a a lab-grown diamond? Um, How do I answer that? What's the definition of real? And what is real about lab-grown diamonds and what is not real about about lab-grown diamonds? So, John, what do you think? Do you think that these are the truths? These are the ones that uh, retailers need to be able to talk to their customers about? Yeah, I do. I I think if you look at the five points, um, some of them are are pretty obvious. I think the five points about uh, mine diamonds or or natural diamonds, uh, you know, one is about their history going back billions of years in the earth, you know, but there there are some very, very interesting ones that I think are important for jewelers to bring up, for the industry to bring up and to be able to discuss. And I think the one that, that... Two that stand out for me is this whole conflict diamond, blood diamond uh, type of argument. 
you know, thanks to the industry and the Kimberley process is flawed as it is, but conflict diamonds are less and less and less of a thing in the industry and really make up such a small amount of the legitimate diamond business that, you know, for consumers to fixate on it is kind of not quite necessary anymore. And it's really for, you know, retailers in the diamond industry to be able to show the steps that the industry has taken and continues to take. And we have this whole talk about blockchain, source verification, etc. So I think that's a point for in the, the natural diamond uh, five-point piece. And also, uh, and the fifth point is the diamond industry makes an important contribution to the world. You, you know, this whole thing that, oh, if you buy synthetic diamonds or lab-grown diamonds, you're saving the planet and it's the ethical thing. Well, what about the 1.5 million artisanal miners whose family, community, and their livelihoods are based around uh, artisanal mining practices? And then if you look at the, the industry... Uh, uh, the mine diamond industry as a whole, the amount of people, again, who are supported by this industry, industry whose, whose towns and villages are based around this industry. So that's a very important point to get around. On the five points with regards to synthetics, I think uh, I'm very happy that they're finally calling out this, I, I don't think we're allowed to curse in this podcast, but this, uh, you know, tactic by the, the lab-grown uh, diamond people that I just think is really so misleading, it's incredible, that they're the green option, that they're environmentally friendly. And uh, the interesting stat that the Diamond Producers Association brings out that the carbon emission emission per carat for a lab-grown diamond can be up to 40% higher than a natural diamond per per carat. So it's really putting across the idea, if you appreciate lab grown diamonds because of their beauty and, and something for you it's just something to have on, on, on your finger or your piece of jewellery that's fine but please don't bring lies into the argument that they're more environmentally friendly or you know that they're the more ethical choice and and I'm really happy that the, the DPA is uh, promoting this is is putting this out there and, and they're doing work with uh, JCK they're also doing work with us to publish this in the magazine and, and try to uh, bring these facts into the market and again you know, synthetic diamonds or lab-grown diamonds or man-made diamonds, they are a thing, but the facts around them, how they, they sell them and for retailers to be able to answer questions and genuine questions by consumers, but to counter, I think, the falsehoods that have been part of, of the marketing and sales of these diamonds for, for quite a number of years, I think it's, it's, it's a very positive. And I think to allow consumers to make a transparent choice, knowing all the pros and cons of both types of diamonds. So, Avi, I mean, that was pretty convincing. I came in somewhat skeptical of the, some of these points, and I think I've been convinced of the value that they can help add to the industry. So thank you, John. Do any of them stand out to you as particularly important? Well, I think you were skeptical because they, in a way, state the obvious. Um, but I think sometimes you need to state the obvious. Um, and, and people don't always have um, at their fingertips the obvious facts that, that are out there. Um, there were one or two um, points that the DPA um, brought across that were sort of aha moments for me, actually. The, the one is that um, they said at the end of their, their second point, um, the point was that uh, lab-grown diamonds are, are produced in a matter of weeks. 
primarily in uh, in Asia. But in their commentary, they said that the origin of a lab-grown diamond is almost never disclosed, which I thought was very interesting um, because there's such a, a strong discussion in the industry about um, source verification. We're talking about putting diamonds on a blockchain and, and having a um, disclosing which mine they come from. But when we co- it comes to lab-grown diamonds, we just have to say that it comes from a factory and, that, uh, and, and we assume that it's ethically produced. But what factory? Where was the factory? Is, is that factory... Um, um, keeping um, a certain standard of, of workers' practice that um, that are, are becoming the, the industry. So I thought that was a very a very um, good point for for them to bring out. The other point that um, they made that was that retail prices continue to erode as the cost of production declines. And this is something that I've had a few discussions with people in the industry because we, we are hearing that in 2018 that um, the price of lab-grown diamonds has um, declined by 5 to 10% even. Um, and people say, ah, oh, that's a De Beers play because um, Lightbox started, um, was introduced and that set a, a price of $800 per carat. Um, but really, it's a, it's a bit deeper than that. I think um, you know, from my discussions with various um, dealers, there's an understanding that production is increasing and demand is increasing as well. So if demand is increasing, you know, it should encourage people to increase their prices. But at the end of the day, production is increasing, so supply is, um, has risen. Um, and also more dealers are, are getting involved in dealing with, uh, with lab-grown diamonds. So there's more sort of competition to supply retailers, which would have an effect on, on prices. So, so I think that's an important point that we've got to all keep in mind that prices of lab-grown diamonds are are declining, which in, essentially enhances the value of, uh, or the relative value of, um, of a natural stone. So, John, I guess we can look forward to seeing these in Rappaport Magazine for November? Oh, yeah. All right, so keep your eyes out for them. Uh, you'll get to see the five essential truths for diamonds and the five essential truths for lab-grown diamonds. Yeah, and I think the, the key thing about it is really, and we, we've talked about this a lot in the magazine, and, and selling the natural diamond. Like if you, if you put a, a lab-grown diamond or a man-made diamond beside a, a mine diamond to the consumer's eye, they can almost look identical, actually will look identical. And it's all about the story surrounding the products. And if we're not able to differentiate them uh, with stories and, and make a value in that, and some people will value that story more, more than others, some people will be willing to pay a premium, some people not that interested and will go for the man-made diamond. But really one thing that mine diamonds bring is that sense of history that sense of value, that that wonderful story, that wonderful billion-plus-year-old story. And I, I think these uh, five-pointer pieces from uh, the DPA really will enhance the storytelling ability of jewelers, of retailers, to communicate in a meaningful way uh, to consumers. And, and that's always going to be a good thing and an essential thing uh, for our industry. Well, thanks, John. I, I always do appreciate when... Uh you know, my skepticism can be quashed a little bit, and I'm looking forward to seeing this in the magazine. And thank you so much for sharing your insight in the studio. Thank you, David. <laughs> and um, thank you, Avi. Always a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. And as well, Joshua, it was good to hear from you, and the interview was really very interesting. Don't thank me. Thank Aaliyah. And thank you, David. 
And thank you to all of you who are listening to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. If you enjoyed this and are looking for more diamond and jewelry industry insight, check out Rappaport Academy, where you can get to know your industry. If you're looking for an edge for your diamond trading business, check out the Rappaport Research Report, Business Intelligence for the Diamond Industry. And don't forget to log in and try RapNet's new trade center with streamlined communications and trading tools. For John, Avi, Joshua, and the whole Rappaport team, thanks for joining us. Thank you.